Welcome to Season 2 of Best in SaaS, where we talk through the patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to $20 million and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Despite the world melting around us, we survive Season 1 with only a few scratches and a couple of bathroom incidents from our resident Best in SaaS puppy mascot, Stuart. Wash your hands and don your favorite face mask because here comes Season 2. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I am thrilled, per usual, for you to listen in on this conversation. But before we get into it, if you're a regular listener and you enjoy the discussions, do me a favor and let us know by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks find the show and it helps Apple realize they should feature us on New and Noteworthy. So that would be awesome. With that, enough of my blabbing. Let's get on to the episode. Cool. So today we have Matt Melamuka on the line with Peakspan Capital. Um, you, you're the co-founder, right? How many of there? How many of you are there? I am uh, Elias, and thanks so much for for having me on the show here. So, uh, yeah. So one of the co-founders and, and partners here at Peakspan. Uh, I co-founded the business five years ago with with two other folks, Phil Durr and Brian Mulvey. We've got about fifteen investment professionals total. Um, so yeah, amazing. And you're focused exclusively on growth stage B2B enterprise, correct? That's right. That's right. So we, um, we only, so focus and specialization is kind of core to everything that we do. So we only focus on growth stage businesses. We call ourselves emerging growth stage, which I can get into to kind of what that means. There's a lot of different variants of, of growth uh, under the sun today, but for us, growth stage businesses, um, all in B2B software under a, a really tight roster of themes within B2B software, Emerging growth for us is it's companies that have stripped away some of the binary risk associated with classic early stage venture. So you've got a real product, you got real customers, um, and you've really kind of solidified product market fit to some degree. Um, that's always evolving and always ongoing throughout the course of the, the company's history, of course, but um, that's where we come in. So you've got product market fit largely established and you're really looking for capital and a thought partner to help you scale to the next level. Um, so most of the companies that we partner with, their challenges at this emerging growth phase and beyond are all about operational execution, sensible risk-taking, uh, pragmatic investment posture, and you know how do you take what's working and, and make it work better and faster and more efficiently. So you mentioned product market fit, and I always love to hear, I feel like everybody has a little bit different way of defining what reaching product market fit means, looks like. Is it for you, is it like a revenue figure? Is it, you know, the speed with which deals close? What? How do you define product market fit at Peakspan? It, it's it's a really good question, uh, and certainly, you know, it's something that's as I alluded to, just always evolving, right? Product market fit is is something that I think you're always like pricing strategy and, and ideal customer profile, things that you're going to be focused on throughout the course of of your business's is history. Uh, product market fit for us means you've established that, you know, A, there's a real market opportunity. Um, you know, I, I love, personally love founding stories where the business and platform was was developed out of identification of an acute need versus some super smart Stanford CS grad building an amazing product that's like desperately seeking a market. Uh, <laughs> that's more nuanced and harder to suss out, but, but you've established there's a real market 
you've established, you know, folks will, will, will buy your product on terms that make sense for you as a business. So you might, you've answered some of those existential questions around, can we build it? Will they buy it on terms that make us, you know, profitable as a business? Um, really core indicator for us is, is retention. Um, and so I think, you know, folks talk a lot about cost of customer acquisition, cost of customer retention in, in SaaS, you know, you're selling software as a service. This is a, it, it's a ongoing service. It's not set it and forget it. And it's not, you know, hard iron that you're selling on-prem. And so um, the ability to retain and expand engagements with your customer base for us is a clear indicator that the the product market fit is is largely there or is or solidifying and forming in some way. So um, you are, I mean, you sit on tons of boards, you see surely plenty of patterns in growth and with your lens of focus and kind of a more pragmatic approach to growth, what are some of the success patterns you've seen? And then after that, I'd love to go into some of the failure patterns and maybe not failure on, on like at a macro level, but specific stumblings that you've seen become patterns that you now coach when you're sitting on the board to founders who are going through this growth sprint. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I, I wish I, I wish I had a, a kind of a silver bullet, like one size fits all answer to it. Every company's journey is, is certainly different, but you know, you definitely see a lot of the same, you know, speed bumps and road signs along the way as you're as you're working with companies. I've I've had the pleasure of, of working with about 20 growth stage software companies in my career so far. Um, and again, you see a lot of the same things. And so for us, um, the things that really work um, from the board level to the you know the management team to the, the operations of the business for us really align, uh, really kind of fall on, on alignment and optionality and, and what I would say kind of pragmatically iterating into success. And so, you know, one of the, the kind of the pervasive themes that, that I see today that's probably more pronounced than ever is just this like go for broke mentality of, of raising as much money as you can and just going as fast as you can and, and taking your burn rate up um, to really uncomfortable levels in pursuit of an outlier outcome. Um, that's not the only way to do it. Um, and, you know, when we come in, the, the companies have, have already um, stripped away or, or built out the city walls of the company to the extent that there's real value there. Um, and, and you've taken a ton of operational risk off the table already. And so one of our mantras is just be careful about reintroducing operational risk when you don't have to. So like re kind of self-imposing operational risk in the form of investing too quickly hiring too quickly, doing things that are unnatural or that you know the company can't palpably digest, uh, oftentimes results in, in just tricky situations. Uh, it, it's always easier to put your foot on the gas than it is to you know, throw people out of the car and, and do a UE. Um, and so for us, it's, it's all about being really aligned and transparent with your investors and, and your management team, your employee base, about what are we defining as success um, and then really iterating into that success while preserving optionality along the way. And, and optionality, I mean, to, to, to mean, uh, you know, growing with resilience and sustainability, controlling your own destiny, not drifting into a capital strategy or operational approach that is uncomfortable without going there proactively. Um, so kind of general terms, but, but those are things that we see time and again. And this whole time, I thought the definition of success was hiring as many engineers as I possibly could in the shortest amount of time. Raising as much as you can at the <laughs> highest price, baby. No, it's, you know, it's, it's so funny though, because, because, you know, you, you and I were just chatting about this a second ago, like shows like Silicon Valley 
are, are, are scary. They're scary in how accurate they are, albeit at a satirical level, because, uh, you know, the, the, the maturation of our asset class as a whole, venture capital, it's been phenomenal. Like there's, there's more, there's more capital than ever before. Um, just the, the awareness of venture capital and what it is, is, is greater than ever before. There's more startups than ever before. It's, it's cool and fun to work at, 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 a, at a startup and be an entrepreneur. Um, but there's a lot of negatives that come with that too, because I think there's, there's a lot of kind of misguided, um, misguided uh, just understanding of, of, you know, capital strategy and how to, how to build a sustainable business and really just the, the multiple paths that are, that are available to companies. Like there's no one size fits all model. Our model is not right for every company. Uh, and, you know, every company uh, just has multiple different ways that they can go about, go about scaling their business. And it's, it's uh, probably not talked about enough. Is there, are, are there industries that you prefer based on, you know, how you've seen these things play out? It's a really, really good question. So, so we, because B2B software is so big, um, you know, it used to be like a narrow lens and confining lens to say we're, we're only investing in B2B software. That's like saying, you know, you're, you're a dentist and like, I only clean teeth now, right? It's like, it's so big, <laughs> it's so massive that it's no longer a confining lens. And so we, we further refine our, our personal lenses. And as partners, we focus on two or three segments within B2B software. Uh, and so I lead our marketing tech theme, our sales tech theme, and our hospitality tech theme. And my whole job is to get really steeped in the categories that the entrepreneurs I work with live in. So we can have just a really strategic, almost operator to operator level of rapport. I'm reading all the same rags that they are thinking about the same things and, and just kind of eat, sleeping and, and breathing these categories um, just so that we can get really, really steeped in the nuances of, of buyer dynamics and competitive landscape and all those things. And so, you know, for us and, and for me within marketing tech and sales tech, like those are super frothy categories, right? And there's a lot of sub-segments and a lot of companies that pursue a model that's very different to the one that I just described, which is Peakspan's motto. Um, and so for us, it's about finding companies and sub-segments and trends that we think are really strategic um, and where you have a, a leadership position in a business and a, and a category that might be smaller on day one, but has real category potential. Um, and really good things happen when you can pick a, a great business and great team and you can work with them to build a great, a great company over time in a category that also, you know, and many times there, the company is driving this, the category, you know, blossoms into a really, really big strategic segment. And so when those two things converge, just really interesting things happen. How do you like to think, I mean, MarTech, obviously probably even more so than sales tech, although that might be changing, but like, like you said, super frothy. Uh, tons of noise, tons of like sizzle, right? You've got like marketers marketing to marketers. Um, how do you cut through that noise? Like how do you gut check and, and decide to go in on something? And then also how do you keep them from going down that like shiny, sexy unicorn building? You know, how do you, how do you focus within that segment? It's such a good question. Yeah. It's, it's a question I wrestle with a lot because you know, again, yeah, the themes that I that I focus on sit in stark like juxtaposition to the strategy that I just articulated with a lot of companies. Right, there's thousands of companies in marketing technology. The prevailing model is certainly you know go for broke. Um, it, it is my job to, um, to to really work hard to be able to kind of suss through the noise. There's a lot of noise in in really many categories of software, but in particular in marketing and sales tech. And so my job is, is really just to understand where, where I believe uh, 
there's going to be sustainable value where companies are doing things that are that are different and not just kind of sexy flash in the pan buzzword stuff. Um, for me, the thing I, I come back to time and again when I try to, to think about categories and companies, um, really two things. One is uh, I have a core principle of mine that, that I started about six years ago where any company that I'm looking at seriously or any category that I'm looking at seriously, I call my mom, who is just a sweetheart of a woman, uh, 70 years old, uh, not the savviest tech entrepreneur on the planet. She you know, probably can, can turn on a computer and maybe has Microsoft Word, but that's about it. Uh, and I force myself to call my mom and describe to her in one sentence what a company does or what this category does. And it's a great forcing function for me intellectually to force myself to suss through the noise uh, and really get down to the, the brass tacks of what does this company do? Why does it matter? What does this category mean? Why does it matter? Um, and for me, the thing that, that I kind of always come back to foundationally is, um, is being about driving outcomes versus being another interesting additive tool in a given tech stack. And so, you know, for marketing tech companies, there's so many companies that are really cool that have that have a place in, in the ecosystem. Um, but for better or for worse, my view, my personal view is they're just an interesting additive tool and they'll always be kind of a tool or a piece of the puzzle. Um, but it's unclear that they're a really must-have solution. They're certainly a nice to have. They can certainly drive efficiency or make you more effective in some way, shape, or form. Um, but for me, the companies I get really excited about are the ones that very clearly drive a business outcome, whether it's generating more revenue or, or driving more traffic to your website, whatever it might be. It's just a very clear, very logical value prop that is totally based on an outcome versus, uh, versus something else. And when you can establish that positioning, it's, it, it really kind of permeates the business from my perspective. Your messaging is more clear. Um, you know, your product roadmap is not necessarily as convoluted as it might be. Everything you're doing is just very clear as to why you're doing it and your customers understand why they need to buy you. Um, it's just a, a really kind of virtuous cycle when you can really found yourself on, on driving an outcome versus, again, being an additive piece to the puzzle. Um, I would much rather be the, the table underneath the puzzle <laughs> or a leg of the stool of the table uh, versus another puzzle piece, if that makes sense. What do you think some white space, like, is there any white space that you are really excited about in either MarTech or sales that you've yet to see a company enter or, or, or try to solve, but you're just waiting for like the right one to come and like, come on guys, let's just, this, this is the, this is the white space. Anything? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about one in sales tech that I've been thinking about and our team has been thinking about uh, for, for a couple of years now. And I've spoken to some companies that are scratching at it. Um, that I think are doing really, really interesting stuff. Um, and a couple of companies we're under under uh, pretty deep discussions with that, that are doing bits and pieces of this. So in, in sales tech, for me, there's a lot of different segments, again, that segments and companies within those segments are doing something really interesting in terms of um, tracking progress, right? And so it's um, syncing your email to your CRM for automated data capture analyzing said email and CRM to produce insights, uh, analyzing actions that your team are taking to, to produce you know, new sales, new conversions, make themselves more efficient. There's so many cool analytical and reporting tools out there to date as to how I'm doing. Um, the, the flip side of the coin that I think sales is driving towards that I would love to see 
is, is really moving beyond um, kind of reactive uh, understanding of how we're doing, where, where are we being efficient to really proactive and, and predictive and prescriptive um, generation of, of not only actionable insights, but of, of actions you should be taking. And so, for example, um, it would, it's always very cool to know, like, look, that our best salesperson is this, um, he or she, you know, sends 10 emails with every deal. They have six champions within, within said buyer before a conversion. Um, it would be really, really helpful, especially as sales teams are getting, you know, more and more inside based, uh, potentially more and more junior in terms of experience level and just general age. Um, if you could come in as a salesperson and, and throw up a screen of a software platform and based on historical data and what's worked for the team, um, you could actually have a next best action. Here are the five things I need to do to push my deals to the next level because they've shown historical efficiency and effectiveness doing that. And, and oh, by the way, let me listen to a call that was being recorded where somebody bridged that gap from you know stage two to stage three in our funnel. Um, and so really just making it dead simple and very prescriptive as to not only what's worked, but um, how you can drive specific opportunities to the next level with prescriptive activity um, kind of generation. That to me is, is where we're going. And, and there's a lot of companies doing really cool things to get us there. Uh, but I think it's a huge opportunity. Who are some of your influences out there, whether they're mentors or operators, any other folks that, that kind of have helped shape your path and continue to inspire you? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I am constantly and every day inspired by my wife, who is a, a totally different human being than I am. Um, she, she works in, in at Spotify and, and, uh, but is certainly not, you know, the typical kind of tech entrepreneur. She, she's a Cambodian, uh, a Cambodian citizen, um, Cambodian native. She's a U.S. citizen. She grew up in, in Bangkok um, and went to school in Thailand, then uh, moved over to Cambodia. Her father fled the Khmer Rouge um, and then went back to his country like 25 years later after, after fleeing like one of the, the craziest, um, you know, most oppressive events in human history. And he just saw that the shambles that his country was in and said, I have to help. And so he's been working in the government after a 30 year career in the US and GE. He's one of the more inspiring people I've ever seen. Um, and, and my wife um, has opened me up to just how big the world is. I'm, I'm a, uh, a Caucasian male from Boston and had gone to, I think, London once when I met my wife and now we've been to 39 countries together. And so wow. it's a big world out there. And, and uh, I've been to Cambodia 10 times now. And, and it's just, it's eye-opening to, to meet people from different cultures and, and different ethnicities with different beliefs. And I really do think it makes us all just better. That stuff to me is, is super inspiring, you know, well beyond any sort of financial, you know, mentor or, or somebody I look up to. Um, and then just my family, my, my, my mother and father and sister, uh, just such a core, you know, set of my beliefs and, and just such a core kind of foundation of, of who I am. So for me, it's, it's, it's more, um, it's people around me that are not directly involved in my line of work that I think I, I look to for inspiration, if that makes sense, versus, you know, um, direct mentors that, that are very obvious ones that, that I'm sure, you know, we could rattle off here as well that I look up to a lot. Nice. And then how about like, just to take your mind off of, all the intensity that you have, you know, paving the way with Peakspan. What, uh, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, so my wife and I have a two-year-old puppy 
named Enzo. He is a, uh, a mini golden retriever. Um, he's, he's, he's the man. And, uh, we spend a lot of time with him. We, we, we take him hiking whenever we can. I, I find myself increasingly trying to get myself away from a computer screen where I spend the vast preponderance of my life to just try to take in my surroundings again, whether it's, you know, hiking with Enzo, um, or going on some, some cool adventure with, with my wife, just trying to get outdoors a lot. Um, I've been snowboarding since I was a little kid. Um, it's a love to do that. Unfortunately, do it less and, and less these days, but try to do at least one trip per year um, and then just travel. Um, you know, again, my, my wife kind of opened me up to the, the glories of, of travel, um, you know, 10 years ago when I when I met her. And any time we can get away, we're, we're doing something experiential versus, you know, trying to buy something. Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it. That's uh, we all need more of that. I think it makes us more balanced entrepreneurs and just operators when we, when we can bring that to the table, just in our kind of way of being with other people, it just, it shows. So I totally agree. I, I think diversity of thought is like the best form of, of diversity on the planet. You know, I think, I think we all, we all are speaking for myself, just try to surround myself with as diverse a group of, of human beings as possible. And it's just diversity of thought is just so beneficial for thinking through things from different angles, um, just, you know, different perspectives and, and insights that you might not have been thinking about yourself. It's just so refreshing, you know, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it's just, it's, it's so it's all goodness. Well, Matt, thanks for joining me. I hope you and uh, Enzo and your wife have some good outdoor adventures planned on the horizon and uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Elias. And thanks for having me on.